0: Imagination was crucial in Lewis's conversion to Christianity and he began to understand the importance of its role as the result of a conversation he had one night with his friends Tolkien and Dyson who showed him that he already responded imaginatively to stories of dying and rising gods and Christianity was principally also a story of a dying and rising god. Except this story was factual, this story was historical and if only he could transfer his imaginative enjoyment of pagan myths to his uh, consideration of Christianity, then he would, he would have a, a great breakthrough, uh, he would dislodge a major blockage in his path to faith. And that's what came about, that's what happened. C.S. Lewis is probably the most successful and influential practitioner of Christian apologetics over the last 100 years. Works such as Mere Christianity, Miracles, The Problem of Pain, Surprised by Joy, as well as his classic Chronicles of Narnia have been read by millions of people around the world since they were first published in the 1940s and 50s. In this lecture, I want to take a step back and look at the Lewis of the 1930s in order to examine some of the groundwork to his thinking that enabled him to become so effective an apologist. Those titles I just listed are the famous flower of his life's work. In what I'm going to say now, I want to inspect the stem and indeed the root of that flower. And I hope that this examination will show that Lewis's apologetics were successful not simply because the Christianity he presented was reasonable, but first and foremost because it was presented with imaginative skill and imaginative intent. Lewis had a profound respect for the imagination, and his thinking about imaginative apologetics constitutes one of the main reasons, I think, why he's still a very relevant and indeed a a most timely voice in the field of apologetics. In our postmodern world, systematic approaches, abstract approaches, propositional apologetics, those sorts of strategies may often be of very limited appeal because of suspicions people have about the supposed neutrality or utility of reason. Well, Lewis himself gave considerable thought to the relations between imagination and reason. And it's this that I want to explore in this and the second lecture. As someone trained in literary history and literary criticism and with great talents as a novelist and poet, Lewis thought long and hard about the role of imagination. But he also taught philosophy at Oxford for a period and was a non-professional theologian of very wide reading. So he also gave great attention to the claims of reason. When he turned to apologetics, that thinking about imagination and reason naturally informed his whole approach. And only if we understand his thinking about both faculties and the way they interrelate with each other will we gain a, a secure grasp, I think, of his effectiveness as an apologist. Now, apologetics is usually defined as a reasoned defense. In Lewis's view, reason could only operate if it was first supplied with materials to reason about, and it was imagination's task to supply those materials. Therefore, apologetics was necessarily and foundationally imaginative. Now, in order to provide a brief Uh, And possibly even an amusing introduction to Lewis's thought on this subject. Let me relate the following untrue story One day I took my car into the repair garage for its annual overhaul At the end of the repair job, I collected the car and as I was driving it out of the garage forecourt I realized I'd forgotten to check on something So I wound down the window. I called over my shoulder to the car mechanic Let's call him Billy for the sake of argument. And I said to Billy, is my rear indicator light working? Billy replied, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Now that little exchange rather neatly encapsulates something of Lewis's definition of imagination. Imagination, as far as Lewis was concerned, was simply the organ of meaning. Now, Billy, my car mechanic, his organ of meaning was sadly deficient. A flashing phenomenon on the back of a car, as far as he was concerned, could have only one possible meaning electrical failure. You know, he was able to see the raw data, the, the light on, the light off, the light on, but he was unable to discover the correct meaning behind those brute facts. He had sight, but he had no insight. He focused on the externals and failed to perceive their inner significance. Not that he was entirely without the capacity to perceive meaning. I mean, he knew the basic meaning of an electrical circuit. This was why he was misled by what he saw. He knew that when a light shines, a connection has been made. And when a light goes out, the connection has been broken. But he was unable to find a meaning in the relationship between the completed and the broken electrical circuit. He was imaginatively incapable of perceiving that in this case, the intermittent light means indicator. It doesn't mean insecure connection. Now Lewis's definition of imagination as the organ of meaning appears in a very important but much overlooked essay entitled Bluspils and Flallon spheres: a Semantic Nightmare. A terrible title for an essay, if you ask me, and maybe that's one of the reasons why this essay has been so overlooked. It was first published in 1939, and you can now find it in the collection entitled Selected Literary Essays, if you want to follow up on these points. The essay is mainly concerned with how metaphors are created and used, but the essay also has some larger scale observations about how we know things. As well as defining imagination as the organ of meaning, Lewis defines the opposite of meaning as, well, he asks the question, what is the opposite of meaning? Is it error? No, the opposite of meaning is not error, but nonsense. The opposite of meaning is meaninglessness. Things have to rise up out of the swamp of nonsense, out of the swamp of meaninglessness, into the realm of meaning if they are to be apprehensible by imagination. Only then can we begin to judge whether their meanings are true or false. Before something can be either true or false, it must mean. Even a lie means something, and a lie understood as a lie can be very instructive. Why is this person lying to me? What does that mean about them? What does that mean about my relationship with them? So even untrue things mean something. It's only nonsensical things that mean nothing. Well, back to Billy and my car. Not every flashing light on a car is meaningful. I mean, sometimes there really are loose connections. The light flickers on and off in in no particular rhythm. And we would do best to describe that as nonsensical. The connections in, in that case are arbitrary. They are random. They are meaningless. But if the connections are regular, if they are patterned, we would begin to conclude that they were possibly significant, they were meaningful. Yes, but what kind of meaning would they have? A true meaning, showing that the driver intended to turn right, or a false meaning, indicating that the driver had just forgotten to cancel the lever? I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience many times of driving down the road, the car in front of you is flashing to go right, it comes to a right-hand turning, and doesn't turn. It goes on another block, doesn't turn. It goes on for miles and miles, past many, many right-hand turnings, flashing away all the time. And eventually you conclude, don't you, that the driver has no intention of turning right whatsoever. He's just forgotten to cancel the lever, or his stereo is on too loud, he can't hear the tick-tick-tick of the, of the indicator. That's what the flashing light now means. It means inattentive driver. It doesn't mean, I mean to turn right. Now, in Lewis's meaning, it is human reason that judges between the available meanings, helping us to differentiate those meanings which are true and illuminating from those which are false and deceptive. So to summarize his definitions, reason, he says, is the natural organ of truth. Imagination, as we've seen, is the organ of meaning. Meaning itself is the antecedent condition of both truth and falsehood, the antecedent condition of both truth and falsehood. That's what meaning is. Before something can be either true or false, it must mean. Leaving his definitions to one side, let's turn now to Lewis's understanding of Christianity and look at the role played by imagination in his own journey towards acceptance of the Christian faith. It's worth doing this, I think, because his theoretical understanding of the relationship between reason and imagination seems to be quite strongly related to his own personal experience in so far as we can reconstruct it from the history of his Christian conversion. Lewis's own imagination, he said, was baptized when in the second half of his teens he read a book called Fantasties by the 19th century Scottish writer George MacDonald. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis explains how much of his early life had been haunted by what he calls joy. These are powerful fugitive sensations of longing and beauty and aesthetic transport similar to what the German Romantics would call Sehnsucht. It's a yearning, it's an inconsolable longing, It's so an ecstatic sense of beauty. Now the effect that his reading of fantasies had upon him was to make these experiences a little less momentary, a little less transitory. Here's a quotation from Surprised by Joy. Lewis says, up till now, each visitation of joy had left the common world momentarily a desert. Even when real clouds or trees had been the material of the vision, they had been so only by reminding me of another world and I did not like the return to ours. But now, as I read Fantastes, I saw the bright shadow coming out of the book and into the real world, and resting there, transforming all common things and yet itself unchanged. Or, more accurately, I saw the common things drawn into the bright shadow. In the depth of my disgraces, in the then invincible ignorance of my intellect, all this was given me without asking, even without my consent. That night my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me not unnaturally took longer. I had not the faintest notion what I'd let myself in for by buying Fantastes. We don't have time to go further into Fantastes or George MacDonald and investigate more precisely why this book and its author had such a profound impact upon Lewis. We just need to note that it happened. What Fantastes did was to awaken Lewis's imaginative capacity for understanding holiness. For the first time, he said, he was able to attach some meaning, some significance to the idea of sanctification. The sanctification of common things, the bread on the table, the coals in the grate, not by throwing them out and, you know, just replacing them with some transcendent, alien reality, but by changing their meaning from the inside, illuminating them with a different light, making them glow with the presence of God. That night my imagination was baptized, Lewis says. The rest of me not unnaturally took a little longer. Well, in fact, it took another 15 years for, Lewis, for the rest of Lewis to be baptized and for his whole outlook, not just his imaginative outlook, to be converted. He became a Christian when he was 32. And if we focus in now on the moment of his Christian conversion, it's uh, interesting to note that at the decisive juncture, again, it was imagination that first had to be addressed. It was through his imagination that his reason and then ultimately his will were transformed. The organ of meaning had to be drafted into action so to speak, before his natural organ of truth could get to work. And both his imagination and his reason had to be satisfied before the core part of him, his heart, his will, his command center, so to speak, could turn about and become Christian. Well, the immediate human cause of his conversion, he says, was a long nighttime conversation that he had with two great friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, who needs no introduction, and another friend called Hugo Dyson, who was a lecturer at uh, the nearby Reading University. And we know about this conversation because in a letter to a third friend, Arthur Greaves, Lewis recounted the substance of what the three men said. And it's clear that questions of meaning, that is to say, questions of imagination, were at the root of it. Lewis's whole problem with Christianity at that stage was fundamentally imaginative. He wrote this to Arthur Greaves, what's been holding me back has not been so much a difficulty in believing as a difficulty in knowing what the Christian doctrine meant. Now, Tolkien and Dyson showed Lewis that Christian doctrines are not actually the main thing about Christianity. Doctrines are translations Into our concepts and ideas of that which God has already expressed in a language more adequate. And this language more adequate is the lived language, the actual historical lived language of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the primary language of Christianity. It's real. It's historical. It's visible. It's tangible. It relates to an actual person actually being born, actually dying, actually living again in some new, ineffably transformed way. The doctrines we get out of that are less true. And when Lewis realized this, he began to gain an understanding of what Christianity really meant. Because he was already fascinated, he'd been fascinated since childhood, by stories of dying and rising gods. In many ancient mythologies, there are stories of characters who die and go down into the underworld and whose death achieves or reveals something back here on Earth. New life in the crops, for instance, or the coming of spring, the coming of sunrise. And Lewis had always found the heart of these pagan stories. He mentions those of Adonis and Bacchus and Balder, among others. He'd always found them to be, as he put it, profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even though I couldn't say in cold prose what they meant. Notice how he keeps talking about meaning. It's an imaginative problem that he's got at this point. But the difference between his attitude to Christianity and his attitude to the pagan myths at this stage of his life, before he was a Christian, was that With the pagan myths, he didn't try to explain them. He didn't try to turn them into doctrines. These stories he considered to be fruitful enough in their own terms. They were myths that had to be accepted as saying something in their own way and not treated as a kind of allegory and translated into something less, something secondary, mere doctrines. And by accepting that Christianity too was primarily to be understood in its own terms as a story, before it gets translated into a codified doctrinal system, by accepting that Lewis had moved, we might say, from an analytic to a religious perspective. Analysis means literally loosening up, analysis in Greek. Religion, on the other hand, means something like tying back together, tying up, re-ligamenting, re-ligaturing, if you like, finding the unity. Doctrines of sanctification, expiation, propitiation, all these complicated sounding words ending in Asian, these doctrines, though though useful, are a product of the analytical mind. They recast the original language, the original historical material, into abstract, less fully realized categories of meaning. In short, doctrines are not so richly meaningful as that which they are doctrines about. And by coming to this conclusion, Lewis had anticipated by several decades the turn to narrative theology, which would characterize much later 20th century theological thinking. So when Lewis understood that the story recounted in the gospels was the essence of Christianity's meaning as opposed to, you know, the unpacking of that material in the epistles and when he understood that the the Christ story could be approached in a way similar to the way he approached pagan myths it was a huge breakthrough for him. Christianity he now saw was a true myth, whereas pagan myths were merely men's myths. That is to say, in paganism, God expresses himself in an unfocused way through the images that human imaginations deployed in order to tell stories about the world. But in the story of Christ, Lewis locates God's myth, the story in which God directly expresses himself through a real historical life of a particular man in a particular time in a particular place doing particular things, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, crucified under Pontius Pilate, outside Jerusalem, circa AD 33, that there were certain similarities between the Christ story and the pagan myths didn't lead Lewis to conclude so much the worse for Christianity, it led him to conclude so much the better for paganism. Paganism contained a good deal of meaning that was realized, consummated, and perfected in Christ. In a sense, Lewis had found in pagan myths what Christ himself had said could be found in the Old Testament, in Hebrew mythology, in the story of Jonah, for instance. Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel, No sign will be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. In other words, Jonah's descent into the belly of the whale and his reascent when the whale vomits him up three days later, that is a meaningful prefiguration of Christ's death and resurrection. And for Lewis, pagan myths of dying and rising gods amounted to a similar sort of prefiguration. A couple of weeks after his conversation with Tolkien and Dyson, Lewis passed on from being nearly certain that Christianity was true, to being certain that it was true. But the important thing to notice for our present purposes in this lecture is that the first hurdle Lewis had to clear, before he could accept the truth of Christianity, was this imaginative hurdle. His organ of meaning had to be attended to and satisfied. Imagination in Lewis's thinking is, is a lower thing than reason, but just because it's lower it doesn't mean that it is therefore to be ignored. On the contrary, it is all the more to be honored. The highest does not stand without the lowest. That's our maxim from the imitation of Christ that Lewis valued greatly. The highest doesn't stand without the lowest. Reason doesn't stand without imagination. Rational assent to Christianity can't occur unless there is some low stuff, some meaningful content to which the higher faculty of reason may grant assent. Reason can't operate without imagination. And as reason casts about looking for things that are not only meaningful but identifiably true, it inevitably finds a great many stories presented for its consideration, some of which are much more true than others, and very few that are completely untrue. This point was important to Lewis because, as a boy, he'd been told by his schoolmasters that Christianity was 100% correct and all other religions, including the pagan myths of ancient Greece and Rome were 100% wrong. And he found this statement incredible. Rather than bolstering the Christian claim, he found that this kind of absolutism undermined it. And he said that he abandoned his childhood faith largely under the influence of classical education. It wasn't so much the claim about Christianity being true that troubled him, it was the claim about everything else being utterly untrue. Well, having discovered through personal experience that the first thing necessary for Christian faith is an apprehension of Christianity's meaningfulness, and not not immediately, not primarily, not, not in the order of explanation, it's truth, Lewis was untroubled by the similarities between paganism and Christianity. For instance, between the pagan Jupiter and the Hebrew Yahweh. The similarities ought to be there. He said. It would be a problem if they were absent. And so he takes pleasure in pointing out in his book, Miracles, that God is supposed to have had a son, just as if God were a mythological deity like Jupiter. The resemblance ought to be present, he said, given that God works through human myths as well as through his own true myth, the historical story of Jesus Christ. God is the father of lights. That's a, a verse from James's epistle that Lewis is very fond of. God is the father of lights. All lights, even the flickering lights of paganism, could be attributed ultimately to God. And so Christians should feel no obligation to go around snuffing out the smoldering wick burning in pagan myths, despising pagan myths because they weren't completely correct. On the contrary... Christians should do whatever they can to find the good in the pagan myths, to fan it into flame. So Lewis, with his great poetic hero, Edmund Spencer, believed that divine wisdom speaks not only on the Mount of Olives, but also on Mount Parnassus. Of course, the wisdom of Mount Parnassus is not complete. It's not salvific. It's not sufficient in Lewis's view, but it should be admired, it should be respected as far as it went. And by acknowledging the wisdom of Mount Parnassus, Lewis was following in the footsteps of St. Paul, of course. In the book of Acts, Paul preaches to the men of Athens, using the pagan gods to communicate his message. Paul says to the Athenians that God is not far from each one of us, for In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." This is from Acts 17. And Paul gives two quotations there. But who's he quoting? Moses? Isaiah? One of the minor prophets? He's not quoting the Hebrew Scriptures at all. He's quoting Greek poetry, poetry about the pagan gods, and in particular, poetry about the king of the pagan gods, Zeus. The first quotation, in him we live and move and have our being, comes, I believe, from the poet Epimenides, a Greek poet and philosopher of the sixth century before Christ. Epimenides wrote a poem in which he refers to Zeus as the one in in whom we live and move and have our being. And the second quotation, comes from Aratus, a poet from about 300 years before Christ, who again, referring to Zeus, says, we are indeed his offspring. Now Paul's example here is extremely interesting. Obviously he's not recommending that the Athenians should start worshipping Zeus. He's urging them, on the contrary, to worship the true God, the, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how he goes making this point. Rather than saying to the Athenians, you've got it completely wrong, he says to them, you've got, it com- you've got it partly right. You're right that we live and move and have our being in God. You're right that we are God's offspring. You're wrong in calling him Zeus, though. His name is not Zeus. But you're right in these other respects. In other words, Paul meets the men of Athens where they are, where they already have an inkling of meaning about the divine nature. He's not concerned to obliterate their traditions. He he feels no need to denigrate their, their limited and their incomplete religious knowledge. Rather he works with it. He adds to it, he corrects it, he sublimates it, he says in rough paraphrase, you have something here. That's good, but there's a whole lot more and that more is to be found in Jesus Christ. In other words, he takes what they already possess imaginatively and he baptizes it. As an apologetic strategy, it only makes sense to meet people where they are, where they already know something of the meaning of the topic under discussion. Where else, indeed, can people be met? Before people come to faith in Christianity, they're not in a state of complete innocence or ignorance about the divine nature. Everyone after a certain age has thoughts and beliefs about what is of ultimate value in the universe, that is to say, what is divine. And those thoughts need to be recognized and responded to. Sometimes, maybe, the response will consist in contradiction. But more often than not, there will be something that can be responded to positively, that can be coaxed into a fuller life and a brighter light. And that's why Lewis can say the only possible basis for Christian apologetics is a proper respect for paganism. Very interesting statement that, very important as a, as a, a principle behind Lewis's whole apologetic strategy. The only possible basis for Christian apologetics is a proper respect for paganism. Paganism must be looked back. That's what respect means. Respect. Looking back at. Look into the eyes of the person that you're discussing Christianity with to see what they mean when they use a particular term like God or faith or sin or judgment or whatever it may be. Only then will you know how much the person you're speaking to needs to listen to what you're saying. So although apologetics is a reasoned defense, its basis is necessarily imaginative. For reason can't work without imagination. And the high value that Lewis accorded to imagination is seen in a very important essay called Myth Became Fact. And with this, I will close. In Myth Became Fact, Lewis says this, I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. The imaginative embrace, in other words, is hardly more necessary than the rational ascent. And in the second part of this lecture, I will look more closely at the relationship between that imaginative embrace and the rational ascent.